and welcome to Sound of the Moment. I'm your host, Pat Cleaver, and this is the bi-weekly show featuring conversations with musicians about jazz, music, and more. I release new episodes every second Monday. Please subscribe to the show wherever you like to get your podcasts to remain updated. If you want to reach me, you can do that on Twitter at Pat Cleaver. You can like the Sound of the Moment page on Facebook, or you can email me at pat at soundofthemoment.com. I expect to keep the show free to listen to and download, but if you do want to support me and help cover the costs of production and hosting, you can make monthly or one-off donations at patreon.com slash soundofthemoment. Many thanks to those of you who already do that. Okay, this is episode number 34 for the 18th of February 2019. My guest is the Romanian saxophonist and clarinetist Alex Simu. Before our conversation, here's a piece from his album Echoes of Bucharest. This one is called Slowly Dancing for Peace. Thank you. 
Alex Simu, a clarinet player and a saxophone player, composer, is my guest today. Alex, thanks for being here. A pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I always like to begin by asking my guests to introduce themselves a bit. So if you could tell folks a bit about who you are, what you do, uh, yeah, where you're from, your background and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's helpful, I think. Yeah, like you just said, a composer, clarinet player, saxophone player, teacher as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm, yeah, Amsterdam-based artist. Yeah. Already living in the Netherlands since about 15 years. Mm-hmm. Studied in the Netherlands in Groningen and Amsterdam. And I was originally born in Romania, Bucharest. Yeah. Where I spent the first 22 years of my life. Mm-hmm. And after that, uh, the Netherlands and the rest of the world. Yeah. Cool. And so... Uh, Maybe that's the obvious first question, but what was it that pushed you to to leave Bucharest in the first place and and come search for like new things in in the Netherlands and why the Netherlands? I suppose a good jazz school, a good saxophone school. That was my main interest. Okay. The music school in Bucharest was fairly good for classical music and uh, traditional things. Mm-hmm. I was looking for a saxophone teacher and saxophone school. Yeah, and there was really not much choice because. Um, I came with an Erasmus program. Okay. And most of the countries were requiring that you speak the language in the country. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's not so, something I realized, but... <laughs> yeah, it, it, uh, it is. So I spoke back then only French and English. Okay. So Paris was extremely expensive and uh, heavily wanted by all the classical players. Yeah. And UK was not really offering saxophone uh, studies back then. So okay. I couldn't really find something over there. I couldn't speak German, so I had to choose a country which accepted students speaking English. Yeah. And that was Netherlands or Norway or Finland or something like that. Yeah, okay. So I thought Netherlands was the best option and turned out to be. I did uh, one year of exchange in Groningen. Yeah. And then I uh, swiftly decided to continue studying there. Mm-hmm. So what was it about like Groningen specifically? Because I feel like... Um, like Amsterdam is maybe the obvious choice or Rotterdam or the, like The Hague, but like there's something about, there's a certain thing about the Groninger School which is, which seems to attract uh, like foreign students. I don't know if that's something that, that speaks to you or what. Uh, well, I think a huge amount of New York teachers. Yeah. You're basically hanging out with the heaviest guys from New York, but in a small town like Groningen. Mm-hmm. And all of them, when they come to Groningen, they can be so relaxed after the New York life or on tour life. <laughs> yeah. And they are all of a sudden super happy and there's good food and um, yeah, good time, lots of jam sessions. So you really learn how to play jazz, almost like you'd be living in New York, but with the advantage of living in a small city. After the jam session, you jump on the bike and you get home in five minutes. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> but so was that always like... Um maybe this is a bit of a backtracking, but like was jazz always the thing that you wanted to do? Because obviously like going to Groningen because it has an incredible group of teachers from New York and stuff like that already feels like a decision of somebody who knows that they want to play jazz music. Um, like at what point did did jazz and improvised music become a part of your thing, I suppose? It was early. Okay. And it was a bit, uh, well, now I see it, it, it can be considered a bit rough. But teachers were screaming at me in the music high school that 
I'm improvising in the concertos of clarinet. <laughs> okay. So they, they were saying like, yeah, you can't do that. And I couldn't see the point, why not? Yeah. Until one of them came to me and said like, you know, there is a style of music where you can actually do that. Mm-hmm. And it's called jazz music. And I had no idea what it meant because yeah. jazz was not that popular in Bucharest in those times, at least not in the circles of musicians where I was living. I mean, it was, I've, yeah, sort of heard of it, but I didn't, I was not aware. I was only 12 or 13. And then I came home and I asked my parents and they had a weird face, like, you want to play jazz? <laughs> like, yeah, I think <laughs> that's what I'm interested in. I heard you can play whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, and they were not really supportive because they thought I'm going to end up playing in the restaurants and uh, nightclubs, <laughs> yeah. which was partly true for a while. Yeah. But that's how uh, I started pursuing jazz music. But then tape by tape from friends and uh, former teachers, I discovered uh, good jazz music. I had like a tape with John Coltrane for three years, having no yeah. idea who the, who was playing on a tape, you know? Okay, yeah. <laughs> that kind of stuff. <laughs> and so it was, was the, like, the, the saxophone a thing that came after the clarinet as well? Or was that always, like, were you always doing the things in parallel? Because I feel like now, I mean, obviously you do a bit of everything, but like, I mainly identify you with the clarinet somehow. And certainly the record that, that, uh, we will speak about uh, shortly is is mainly clarinet based. Um, I don't know. Can you speak a bit to the like the two instruments and how like how you see your yourself as regards to them? It's something I'm always uh, figuring out myself. I'm still perhaps at the moment more clear about the clarinet, mm. but I started playing clarinet when I was nine and a half or ten. I was very young, and it took uh, eight years to realize that the instrument didn't offer me much. So <laughs> okay. it, was, it, was, it was quite a struggle. I, I was happy playing folk music, mm-hmm. but all the classical music was um, extremely boring to me back okay. then. So I felt like I'm wasting my time until I heard saxophone in one night. Mm-hmm. And then it was like a night and day difference. And uh, it was a tribute to John Coltrane in the club. Mm-hmm. The guys were playing all three of them, tenor saxophone, and sounded like, yeah, this sounds like an instrument you can play with it. <laughs> yeah. So from that day on, I was for about 10 years obsessed with playing only tenor saxophone almost. Yeah. But when I moved to New York and I was living there, I had some interesting encounters. And one of them was with David Liebman in his mm-hmm. classes. And Dave, he's uh, a very good teacher, very f- funny jovial guy he really makes really good jokes yeah but in the classes he could have been very often absorbed in his thoughts so he was giving us comments and so it it all seemed fair but one day he heard me playing clarinet and he raised his look at me and he looked at me and he starts like i mean you can really play beautiful clarinet (laughs) and for me that was like a shock okay coming from david liman i was like well maybe maybe I can play good clarinet, you know. <laughs> if David Lehman says so, because he never said anything to any other student, he said, yeah, you guys sound good, you know, like the typical yeah, sure. uh, New York uh, good words and also well-intended, but he would never be really saying something directly to us mm-hmm. too often. So that really made me think and also I noticed back then in New York there were not many clarinet players. And everybody kept asking me to play clarinet. And when I moved back in 2009, the thing went on. So Franz mm-hmm. Fanchosi asked me to play a lot of clarinet. Yeah. So slowly I realized that 
the instrument was speaking closer to my own essence. Okay. So I kept playing clarinet. And then, as a consequence, I was not able to find a place for saxophone. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So yeah. you have a really nice standard saxophone that you can play, but uh, you can't find music that really suits uh, yeah. close enough with your own essence, which was my uh, trouble. But I didn't give up. So I, I have a feeling that it comes in waves. Mm -hmm. So perhaps in a couple of years or who knows, I'm going to find the music where the saxophone uh, is like a fish in the water and the clarinet yeah. doesn't really cut it. Yeah, okay. No, that makes sense. And I mean, I suppose while we're on the, the subject, uh, there's one, like, on the subject of, like, clarinets and instruments and stuff, there's one thing about you that uh, that is fairly extraordinary, which is, like, the number of different clarinets that you play. And, and I think the, like... I feel like we're fairly used to the idea of bass clarinet in jazz and improvised music now, but as far as I understand, you also bring in a whole bunch of other clarinets that people are a lot less used to hearing. Uh, maybe you can speak to that a bit and about your, your interest in, in those instruments. Paradoxically, it comes from saxophone. Okay. So you know, as a saxophone player, you, you're very familiar having a soprano saxophone in the bag. Mm -hmm. You play some baritone, you play, it doesn't matter which one you play, you always play all of them. Yeah. So when I came back to the clarinet, uh, I really treated the instrument, the whole family, like one big clarinet. So I'm not thinking like different clarinets, but like one huge clarinet that goes from very, very high to very, very low. Okay. And then, same in the same way of thinking from the saxophones, I was looking for a mid-lower voice in the family which was awkwardly missing. Mm -hmm. So for years I was playing soprano and bass, so I thought, why isn't there something in the middle? Yeah. And it turned out that there was a gap because of uh, historical reasons, circumstantial reasons. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever made an instrument that really plays uh, well with good timber and um, is also fairly affordable. So then I started working on that. So that's how the tenor clarinet came to life. Mm -hmm. And then I kept working on improving the bass clarinet, improving the contrabass clarinet, improving also the soprano clarinet. I, I, I basically understood by visiting manufacturers and talking to manufacturer places, manufacturers, yeah. that the evolution of the instrument stagnated uh, or stopped somewhere in the 60s or 50s. Okay. So I, I saw it as an open field where I can um, bring in my creativity. Yeah. But so are you actually like working with like instrument makers and stuff to like push it forward now? Or is it just that you're bringing these instruments that exist but that are underappreciated? Uh, no, uh, basically I cannot say that I own a factory, but I'm part of a factory. So the factory <laughs> okay. is split between a uh, few friends of mine who own the machines and know how to use them mm -hmm. and myself as an instrument designer and marketing strategist. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Cool. And so, like, is that something that that is, I mean, I, I guess working is maybe the wrong way to put it, but, like, are you finding interest for, like, how, how what kind of a market is there now for, for these instruments? Uh, it's a small one, but it's growing. And what I saw already, this is happening already since 10 years, since 2009. Mm-hmm. So what I saw was that I understood that one person, myself, I was able to influence nearly all the big makers. 
And because of the things I experimented with, they all included new products in their lines. Okay. Though they wouldn't credit for, uh, me for that or perhaps together with other uh, innovators, it was a wave strong enough to make the big factories produce other things. Yeah. And then uh, I have few interesting clients which are really interested in personal items and then we make that. Yeah. And um, of course nowadays uh, with the help of internet you you reach the whole world. So we have clients from yeah all five continents. They write yeah. us, they want an instrument. So we don't produce massive but um, we do and it works. Yeah. No, it's cool. I guess it's true. Like now, the, indeed, with the internet, niche markets are just opening up. Like it doesn't take that many people to to justify uh, this kind of stuff. Do you feel like the clarinet is like? Do you feel like it's gaining a new appreciation? I mean, I feel like I've noticed it as as though, and maybe I'm completely wrong about this, but I feel like it's become more of its own instrument maybe over the past decade or so as far as like jazz musicians are concerned rather than just, hey, you know, you play in a big band and so somebody has to double on clarinet kind of thing. Um, I mean, things like, for example, the fact that there is now a master's in, in jazz clarinet at the Conservatory in Amsterdam, the fact that you're teaching clarinets uh, in Rotterdam, like, is that, do you feel like the new generation feel like, do you feel like there's a renewed enthusiasm for the clarinet or is that? I think so. It's It's very obvious and... It's due to many factors. I think the study of saxophone um, in schools was necessary because of so many big bands. Mm -hmm. But same as the orchestras, the classical orchestras uh, have been diminishing in in number. Mm -hmm. The same way the big bands and paid jobs in a big band have disappeared. Yeah. So nowadays, if you're a jazz musician you're pretty much on your own with your own bands and projects. So you might play actually whatever you want. Yeah. And that can be from uh, harmonica to accordion to harp. <laughs> and so the clarinet came in. Yeah, there, is, there are even people studying hoboe or fagot. Yeah, like that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the clarinet, which, yeah, in comparison with, well, not with the bassoon, but with the flute or oboe, it did have a continuing history with a lot of, great musicians which didn't have the same uh, limelight like saxophone players but they were there you know Jimmy Jeffrey was there yeah sure Barry DeFranco was there uh, Tony Scott was there all of them uh, Eric Dolphy they were all yeah. uh, on uh, in the front line of jazz mm -hmm. but just not as popular as Miles Davis you know yeah sure so I think clarinet players are now reviewing also the history and they're realizing the the big heritage the instrument has and they're getting inspired and because of its absence it becomes a sort of a new sound mm -hmm. and also because of the versatility I mean it took uh, guys like Eric Dolphy or Tony Scott to understand the versatility of the instrument to take it out of the classical uh, way of playing yeah no sure no, that, that's, uh, it's just an interesting phenomenon I feel like I've I've seen growing somehow uh Maybe we should move on to, I mean, there's so many things I want to talk about with you, but uh, let's maybe move on to your record uh, and your quintet. Uh, so the record is called Echoes of Bucharest. Um, and as far as I understood, it's your first album as a leader, like as a by yourself. Um, 
which I was kind of surprised by because I feel like I've seen you around forever and obviously you I guess you've been doing stuff as a co-leader and things but uh but yeah but can you first of all maybe tell me a bit about the the band and the the guys in the band and stuff and about how the project came together yes I mean you're right it is my first album as a leader and I was also a bit surprised but not very because I was aware of that <laughs> yeah you should know <laughs> I was uh I'm a quite patient person so though I did make many records as a co-leader mm-hmm. and back in the school days I was making a lot of records with the band I had back then perhaps my perfectionist side made me wait so long until I had the perfect band okay playing like a dream and uh, being able to record uh, the music as I was imagining it or actually beyond as I was imagining it mm-hmm. so it took a while to to find the musicians, have them in the same place. All of them uh, brought at the table a lot of common experience. So with all of them, I played for at least, I don't know, six, seven, eight years. Now it's already 10 years. Yeah. So I, w- I was playing since a long time with Franz Van Chassis. Yeah. Also with George Dimitrio, we go back uh, from the days in Bucharest. Yeah. With uh, Christian... We played a lot in Groningen and since then ever. Yeah, that's Christian Kranchen on Christian Kranchen drums on drums and cello. cello and also yeah. with Jörg Brinkmann, we played a lot in Francis Quintet. Yeah, sure. So I was collecting these um, experiences and then also with Jörg and George Dimitri, we did a lot of film music together. Mm-hmm. So that was also partly influencing my approach on music. So then when I had all the guys together, I, I felt, okay, now this is it. This is what it has to be. Yeah. And the music was also quite ready. Mm-hmm. So that's how the album came together. Yeah. And I take it that it would, like from what you just said, it had more to do with the individuals rather than a specific instrumentation that you had picked uh, somehow. Like, is, is it the case that, like, for example, it's a very obvious thing, but as a bass player, this is the first thing that jumps out at me, which is that there's no bass on the record and there is cello that fulfills that. And obviously Jörg fulfills that function incredibly well, but that's a kind of an interesting choice. Um, and I think that probably speaks to the idea of these are the four people that I want in my band rather than, I know that I need, you know, a piano player and a guitar player and a whatever, you know. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's spot on. I mean, I really went for the people because I thought, okay, these guys are going to make the music sound exactly or at least as I imagine um, as I was imagining it, but actually they made it even more rich than I was hoping to. Mm-hmm. So, I was totally aware that York besides playing cello as cello, he also plays it as a bass or double bass. Yeah. And I'm also doing that a lot, substituting my uh, contrabass clarinet or bass clarinet for yeah, playing bass. So it was more about the people and their way of playing rather than a certain instrumentation. Maybe, yes, having a jazz quintet with piano and guitar was always one of my favorite setups. Yeah. Okay. I always enjoyed that having both instruments in a, in a, in a, in a combo. Mm-hmm. But I guess if there were other people playing other instruments that I, I had felt that, okay, this really needs to go in, uh, I, I had not seen a, an obstacle. Yeah. No, fair enough. Um, so the I'm interested in the, like, 
the thematic nature of the of the record and the the just like from what I read, okay, so it's called Echoes of Bucharest, and um, as far as I understood, you put a lot of like attention to the idea of like expressing the the kind of historic nature of Bucharest in both like a historical context but also in a contemporary context. Can you speak a bit to like obviously Bucharest is home to you, I suppose, so that <laughs> there's that thing. But can, can you speak? I don't expect that everybody is aware of the of the history of Bucharest and what are all the aspects of Bucharest that you've brought into the record? It all started with uh, the freedom of doing whatever I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So I, I, perhaps everybody gets to this point in life when you can do whatever you want to do. And then you figure out that actually you cannot do whatever you want to do. You can do the only thing you can do. Mm. So this was the only thing that was for me available back then. It, it felt like, okay, this music needs to happen in this way with this um, meaning. It was for me clear that somehow these sounds and these ideas were playing so um, intensely inside of me, like a necessity to fully understand who I am, where I come from, and where I stand now in relationship with that. Mm -hmm. Paradoxically, the, the record can sound a lot more like Amsterdam and Bucharest, if people think about it, it's like, yeah, this sounds like, this sounds like anywhere in the world. Of course it does, because uh, it's not about Bucharest, but, but about the reflections of it and the echoes of uh, a great big city. Yeah. And that's also how I came to the music, by remembering and seeing fragments of um, a certain culture mirrored all around the world. And not per se being melancholic or reminiscing about it, but more bringing them in the spotlight. Mm -hmm. So it was in a way also a, a gift towards my hometown, uh, putting it in the spotlight and aiming to create this uh, little brick that contributes to um, European common consciousness, which obviously is missing since East Europe after the fall of the wall uh, tried very hard to catch up with Western Europe, but Western Europe didn't really make a lot of effort to learn and understand who is and who uh yeah what is it about east europe yeah so it became uh, part of the mission to bring this record as a gateway towards exploring the culture of uh, of a beautiful city with very rich history rather uh, yeah long uh, existence it's 200 years younger than amsterdam yeah sure and um, all those elements, writers, poets, artists, philosophers, important historical events, the architecture of the city, but as well my own experience with them, um, they were the, um, yeah, the, the oil in which the music was baked. Yeah, sure. But so what does that actually look like? Because that sounds like an impossible task to me <laughs> like maybe that's an that's that's not a fair statement but like trying to boil down all of that somehow like i suppose what i'm asking is what does your compositional process look like like how do you yeah how do you approach expressing all of this stuff it's it's a bit like uh, like miles davis you no know, first i play and then i tell you what it is okay yeah so i was composing it and I was, we were playing it, and then I was, I was understanding. Aha, that's where it comes from. Okay. Because music just comes to me. So 
I'm hearing it, I'm writing it down, I'm arranging it. Mm -hmm. And then I'm trying to understand where did, it, where did this came from? What is this? Where did I get the idea to do this? Yeah. And then I realized, ah, wait a minute, I was reading this and this. Yeah, obviously this is... So I didn't, my goal was not to synthesize the whole history, but actually my favorite parts or what I thought it's really a must know or a must see from my point of view. Yeah. So a poet like Nina Cassian or a philosopher like Mircea Eliade, mm -hmm. uh, these people are universal, as important as many other uh, philosophers of, or writers. Yeah. So I felt the duty of expressing their impressions on me through my sounds. Yeah. But that's something that just happens naturally and then you understand it yeah. afterwards. That's cool. And how, I mean, I think I ask this question fairly often, but how important is it for your bandmates to understand and relate to all that stuff? Like if you compose it without necessarily the conscious decision and approach of this is what I'm doing, like do the guys in the band know and understand all of that like context or is there just a certain amount of freedom of just do what you're going to do and hopefully it'll fit? Or is the material so clear that it'll just happen? I don't know. It's difficult to say, especially when you have so skilled musicians like these guys mm -hmm. and talented. Yet, uh, for me, I think it's crucial because I wanted beyond a good jazz record. I mean, jazz players, you know, they just play. Yeah. You give them some. You don't give them anything, and they play. Yeah, sure. But I wanted them to express a certain very peculiar energy. So even before we did the record, we went for a long tour in uh, Romania. Mm -hmm. And we were hanging out in Bucharest, important places, rest of the country. Yeah. So I wanted them to be soaked with that energy because I knew it's going to take a long time until uh, Romanians in Bucharest will get to this record because they're very slow. Mm -hmm. But eventually when they will, uh, they will be devastated. That was my goal, to really provoke them a shock. Okay. A pleasant one yeah. of understanding what their city or country is about. Mm -hmm. So for that, I was I had to make sure that the ingredients are very well uh, prepared. Yeah, and it it works. I mean, uh, the last tour we did for the release in in Romania, it was uh, shocking for me. We're selling like one box per night wow. of CDs, so that was like really a lot. Yeah, that's unexpected. And everybody <laughs> in Romania or everybody who got the record. Uh, wrote me back and said like wow I was not expecting that but it really moved me yeah and I think it's due to the fact that every guy in the band of course George knew Bucharest by heart yeah but also Franz York and Christian uh, had a, a good deal of the local culture yeah. and what it meant what it means actually still yeah sure and so what was the actual like recording process like like how where did you do it how long did it take you what what did you do to get in that frame of mind, I suppose? It took exactly two days. We mm -hmm. went to, to Germany in uh, the famous Fattoria de Musica, the, yeah. music, the music factory. Yeah. And uh, uh, I, I, I choose the place for simplicity, having one of the best sound engineers in the world, yeah. having uh, silence around the studio, no traffic, nothing. Yeah. And then the guys managing to empty their head and focus only on the music. Mm -hmm. We played, uh, I think, each piece a couple of times, or two or three times. We did some free playing. 
and uh, there was nearly no editing. Mm-hmm. My biggest str- struggle was to choose which of the takes I, I put on the, on the disc. Yeah, sure. Because they were very close to each other. And uh, I used to make playlists and listen to them while being in Belgrade. Mm. Uh, visiting my girlfriend, I, w- I would walk through Belgrade because Belgrade looks a lot like Bucharest and feels like Bucharest, but it's okay. not, you know, it's like an echo. Yeah, sure. So it was a perfect environment to test uh, the Bucharest record. Yeah. And uh, I would make every morning one playlist, listen to it, and it's like, okay, no, this take, no, rather that take, the other take. So I did this for two weeks. Okay. Until I had the right playlist and then that was the record. Yeah, cool. And so I take it that... Besides the record being called that, like as far as I can tell, uh, you kind of call the entire project uh, Echoes of Bucharest. Is it the case that you're going to, like, is it the case that you're planning to do more stuff, make a second record with the, with the same lineup? Do you have any plans in that sense? I, I guess what I'm interested in is it feels like such a unique and clearly focused idea that, like, how do you take, it feels like this quintet deserves more uh and deserves a, a like next step somehow but what do you have any idea of what that step could be yes the next step is actually a branch coming out of this project we're going to do a series of concerts where the focus of the echoes is not going to be on bucharest but on the music of george Enescu. okay so this year towards the end in the festival europalia we will have a series of concerts where the music from the Echoes of Bucharest will be blended and accentuated with more Georgianesco music. Yeah. And the focus will be on echoing Enescu's compositions for the very same reason of appreciation, but as well uh, richness in everything from all possible musical sides. Yeah, sure. Can you, like, I, I don't know that everybody will be, like, familiar with Inescu's work. Like, can you point to what it is about it that is so, uh, like, inspiring and, and, like, worth exploring to you? Well, Inescu is the composer of mm-hmm. Romania. Yeah, of he, course. He, he is the most uh, well-known and appreciated and also the most productive in the last century. Mm-hmm. And he lived a very big part of his life in France or touring around the world. Yeah. And um, nowadays, some of the critics and conductors consider him the Mozart of the past century. Yeah. He did not leave a huge amount of compositions behind him due to his exigence. He was extremely uh, exigent with his compositions and creations. But what he left is remarkable. And what is very special about him is that he went first uh, through the Viennese school and then he joined the French school. Mm -hmm. So his music is situated somehow as an ideal, perfect blend between uh, what the followers of Brahms and Wagner were doing at that time, and what the French counterparts in Impressionism were doing, Ravel and Debussy. Yeah, sure. But he is none of these. Yeah. He, he really found his own signature. He also managed to um, poetically include motives of Romanian folk music, mm-hmm. but without uh, 
butchering it or without degrading it or neither giving it the spice or ingredient value. He really managed to extract the essence of it and introduce it in his compositions so that it felt like a true organic part. Mm -hmm. So all this created a lot of interest and he's also quite often associated with Gershwin. Yeah. Back in those days, his Rhapsody was playing was played back to back with uh, Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, so the Romanian Rhapsody and the Rhapsody in Blue. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, of course, there is still time that he will be more and more discovered and played and appreciated. Yeah. But it seems like he is already uh, gaining terrain last year the opera in Amsterdam played his masterpiece, Oedipus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which was Oedipus was uh, impressive. Yeah, and it's it's a very difficult and costly production. Mm-hmm. So it's it's different than staging Mozart or um, Verdi. Yeah, sure. No, cool. I I look forward to hearing that stuff. It sounds like an interesting uh, interesting next step. Like I said, uh, there is something. Um, Something quite uh, important about your work, I suppose, that I think we should touch on, which is uh, you do a lot of film composing and uh, you are like a award-winning film composer, so to speak, uh, quite literally so. Um, can you can you tell me a bit about how that came about? Like what, what was your introduction to writing film music and how that has evolved? Because you've been doing it for almost a decade now, I guess, maybe even longer than that. Um, it's, it's not a film, ex, uh, film music is not that long. It's now exactly seven years since I started. Okay, yeah. I was doing it for a lot longer indeed in another circumstance. When I was a teenager, I would help a lot producing music for advertisements. Okay. I did all throughout the last one decade and a half or even more music for theater. So I was familiar with the dramaturgy of, or the relationship between music and dramaturgy. Yeah. Uh, yet film music came to me through a, yeah, unexpected context. Mm-hmm. First of all, um, a director in a film uh, house, Vitfilm in Amsterdam, was looking for a, a bit of music to fill in the gaps in a film. Okay. And that music happened to belong to me. Okay. Uh, released with uh, a band called, the band called Tarana. Mm-hmm. And then they realized that I'm a composer and they thought, well, maybe you can actually compose some music. Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning of a now still lasting friendship. Yeah. And the director of the company, Baudewein Kohle, as well as, the, as a film director, uh, took the risk to ask me for his following films back then. Mm-hmm. And that's how now we already did five films together. Yeah. Like three short films and two long features. Mm-hmm. Cool. And so like how does how does that differ from your regular composing? Like the way you described how you wrote the music for this record feels like it would not fit in the context of writing film music. But then again, maybe you have a specific way of writing. Like maybe the reason that people ask you is because of the the nature of the things that just come out of you. I don't know. But like it seems like yeah, I, I don't know. I'm interested in, in if and how that process differs to you. I see it a, a bit like uh, the work of a good architect. Mm-hmm. So let's say if I'm a good architect, quite rich one, and I own a piece of land, a nice piece of land with view over the sea and so on, yeah. I'm going to build there whatever I feel like. 
yeah. for myself. And that's my album. Mm-hmm. And I can do whatever I want, you know, like from a swimming pool, uh, crossing the hill and so on. And I, I'm limitless. Yeah. But then uh, your neighbor who owns also a piece of land and he's a film director and says, uh, I would like something for my piece of land, but... Yeah, I don't have a view over the sea. I have a cave and so on. So can you make all these wishes fit into my piece of land? Mm -hmm. And then I have to work from that kind of frame of mind. So they present me a script or an idea or a synopsis or sometimes a ready cut film. Yeah. And from there on, I have to see how I can make a building which takes uh, exactly the right amount of space that is available and fulfills all the necessities, mm. yet remaining transparent and is not also too expensive. Yeah. And uh, and then, yeah, th- there, there are limitations, of course. There are also um, creative frames in which I have to work. Mm-hmm. So it, it, of course, is very different than making my own, own album or writing for just a, a normal ensemble. Yeah, sure. But so, like, what 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 shape does that typically take? Are you writing orchestral stuff? Are you like writing more like small chamber music things? Are you writing whatever it is that like is there is there an aesthetic that you feel is common, or do you? Yeah, I have uh, my bottom line is good music. Yeah, it has okay. to be good music. Yeah, it has to be following um, decent aesthetics, mm-hmm. and I'm really firm on not compromising. So, uh, like I was just attending a masterclass with Cliff Martinez, mm-hmm. and he was saying for himself, copying is somewhere between dying and rottening or something like that <laughs> and I totally agree with him yeah uh, as well in my own music but also in film composition I try to always satisfy the needs the um, dramaturgic needs without uh, yeah breaking the rules without stealing from other people or or was it it's not so obvious, but when you receive a movie already cut, it, it can be very often with a lot of music under it. Yeah. And very often the production house or director can say, well, we actually want this, but we can't pay it because it belongs to, yeah, so you have to remake Madonna it. or something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and then you obviously have to remake it, but then uh, with that limit, I'm, I'm not willing to compromise. So I never make exact copies. I always say, well, I can make you something that sounds that delivers the same, but you have to get used to it. That yeah. is not going to sound like the song of whoever mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. And neither, I'm also trying to diverge uh, all the recording and uh, working possibilities to real musicians in mm-hmm. the defavor of computer musicians and yeah. MIDI samples. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, uh, if and whenever that's possible, I suppose it, it's... It's preferable. So how, uh, maybe this is probably a very similar question, but like how does the, where is there any space for improvisation in that stuff? I mean, obviously you're an improviser. Um, do you find space to improvise? Uh, does it, does the compositional process take a kind of improvisational uh, nature? Yeah, I mean, it, it really depends. I mean, if you're going to talk with George Dumitriou, which he did almost all the film sessions uh, mm-hmm. with me for most of the movies, uh, he's also surprised that sometimes there is no score 
<laughs> or sometimes there are 18 pages of score. Yeah. So it really depends on the film, what is the character, and the score is really variating from, like you said, chamber music or just one instrument, minimal stuff, or yeah. it can be also modular synthesis, mm -hmm. or even, uh, yeah, heavily produced uh, pop songs. Yeah. Uh, two orchestral stuff, uh, chamber ensembles, or maybe even a big band or anything. Mm -hmm. So it, it really, what the film needs and what the budget afford, uh, permi yeah, permits, I usually try to maximize it in order to have fun myself, the film team and also the music uh, part. Yeah. So I try to keep it an exciting process, otherwise it can easily become a boring job, which yeah. I, I definitely don't, don't want to have. No, fair enough. Uh, that <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned just before we started recording that there was an album that's coming out very soon that you wanted to talk about a bit um, that I wasn't aware of beforehand, but I suppose like that leads me also into, in general, like uh, are there other projects, other things you're up to that you want to mention? Yeah, in two weeks comes out in New York on the Sunnyside Records label, a brand new album together, which I recorded together with Lucian Ban, mm -hmm. also Romanian, originally from um, Cluj, the um, capital of Transylvania. Yeah. He also lives abroad since a long time. He established himself in New York mm -hmm. since nearly 20 years or more, more. Yeah. And he's very well known in the jazz scene over there and also around the world. Yeah, sure. And I had the privilege to play a tour with him exactly one year ago in Romania. Mm. And we recorded the first concert in Bucharest. And uh, we were so happy with it that we decided to release it. Yeah. And the whole concert and the tour was specifically dedicated to Jimmy Jeffrey. Okay, yeah. And I have and had a special connection to his music even more Lucian Ban uh, met uh, I think the wife of Jimmy Jeffrey if I'm not wrong okay. and perhaps as well Jimmy Jeffrey no that, that I don't think so I don't remember exactly but mm -hmm. uh, he also was heavily influenced about it and also by his records with uh, Paul Blay yeah sure so we found a solid common ground in uh, in that and so that's how the free fall album came out okay free fall is what it's called free fall. okay cool so people can uh, go look for that hopefully uh, any other stuff other stuff uh still working with george dimitriou yeah sure we have our uh, duo project sound of now okay yeah. which is going to grow this year mm -hmm. and as well in two weeks i'm recording a new album with arifa Oh yeah, of course, yeah. Um, the group which I'm co-leading with Franz von Schossi and Shine During. Yeah. And we're counting now already about, yeah, 10 years of existence. Yeah. After three other albums, we decided to make a four, fourth one. Yeah. And that's more along kind of the world music uh, lines of stuff, I suppose. I'm not sure. I think it kind of falls right in between. Mm -hmm. So either hits both or none. Okay. <laughs> There's always a danger uh, going between the lines, but that's kind of our field of expertise. So we are jazz players, but 
some people know us as world musicians. We are world musicians. Some people know us as jazz players. Yeah. But in practice, we like to play what we like to hear. Yeah. So Arifa is one of these projects where there is a lot of jazz music, but when you hear it first time, you don't think that this is jazz. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like what was happening to Gershwin in the beginning of last century. Classical people loved his jazz part and jazz musicians love his classical part. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of the same with us, like world uh, musicians say, oh, I really love the jazz part yeah. because they feel that the world music or the traditional part is not evident enough. Yeah, And okay. the other way around, just players like, yeah, I really like those folk influences, but you know, your jazz, it's a bit... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it's, this is, it's exactly what it is. That's how we feel um, to play in this setting. Yeah, cool. Well, uh, again, I mean, there'll be a bunch of links for people to follow to find all the stuff that you're up to uh, on the website. Uh, I always like to end the conversations by asking my guests to recommend something for the audience to check out. So uh, I don't know if you've got anything you would recommend. Uh, It can be a film, it can be a book, it can be, I don't know, an artist in particular, whatever comes to mind. Well, I I like books. And I like to challenge people. And I also know that your podcast is listened by a lot of very interesting people. (laughs) Okay, I hope so. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm aware of that. So um, this question popped up lately a couple of times. So I'm going to recommend a very difficult and strong book. Okay. But which really brings um, amazing insights in our own existence as humans. Mm-hmm. in the universe and it's called In the Search of the Miraculous okay by P.D. Uspensky yeah it's a free book they can find it online or they can actually buy it which I recommend yeah and um, yeah I leave them with that okay cool well uh, there'll be a link to that as well uh, Alex thanks uh, thanks so much for taking the time to do this thank you Pat for inviting me That was Alex Simo, and I'll be playing you more of his music in just a moment. Many thanks to my fellow members of Catrio for providing the intro and outro music for the show. Please subscribe wherever you like to get your podcasts. You uh, can leave a favorable review or rating in iTunes if you enjoy it. That is really helpful to reach new listeners. Or just tell a friend if you know anybody who'd be interested in listening to this kind of podcast. Go to patreon.com slash moment if you'd like to make a donation to help me keep the show up and running. Even the smallest amount is incredibly helpful. Many thanks to those of you who are already donating. You can reach me on Twitter at Pat Cleaver. You can like the Facebook page for Sound of the Moment or you can email me at pat at soundofthemoment.com. As promised, here is more music from my guest Alex Simo from the brand new album Freefall with Lucien Ban. This piece is called Quiet Storm. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Sound of the Moment. <laughs>